Gracious God, thank you so much for your forgiveness, your mercies, your compassion towards sinners like us. Thank you for being the sovereign God of the universe who is in control of all things in this, on this earth and beyond. And uh, we're grateful uh, that you are mindful of even us. And in your care and love for us, God, you have given us your truth in your word. And we are so privileged to be able to hear that this morning once again. Thank you for everyone that you've brought to our church worship service today here and on, on, on the live stream. And I pray for encouragement and blessing and learning and growth. And ultimately, God, uh, that you'd be glorified and honored through this time of worship as well. And we pray these things in the strong name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're continuing our God's Story of Beginnings series that we started a while back. We are in chapter 6, and this is Catastrophe Part 2. We started the third sea of our seas of history, Catastrophe, last week. And so we are in Genesis 6, starting in verse 9 today. But before we read the text... I want to say that there are stories and legends about a worldwide flood that are found in historic records all over the world. And according to Christian author Dr. Dwayne Gish, there are more than 270 such stories. And most of them share common and similar characteristics. Stories of a great flood, as distorted as some of the information is, They exist in practically all nations, and they go way back in world history, even way back to ancient Babylon. So it's logical to ask, where did all these stories come from? And there are some people, mostly non-Christian people, or before I was saved, unbelievers, who claim that this story in the Bible is entirely fiction. And it's just another tale told by man uh, to teach a moral lesson. And there are others, even within Christendom, who argue that the flood was only a local one. It was only the surrounding area or country that Noah lived in, right? These are the people who say, well, God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't destroy the whole world. You know, maybe somewhere in the Middle East there, that section, right? But listen, if the flood never happened, or if it wasn't a universal worldwide event, then why are there so many stories, so many stories found in historical records in the nations all around the world about it. Dr. Monty White of Answers in Genesis, he describes a couple of these stories. Quote, Hawaiians have a flood story that tells of a time when long after the death of the first man, the world became a wicked, terrible place. Only one good man was left, and his name was Nu'u. He made a great canoe with a house on it and filled it with animals. In this story, the waters came up over all the earth and killed all the people, and only Nu'u and his family were saved. There's another flood story uh, from China. It records that Fuhi, his wife, three sons, and three daughters escaped a great flood and were the only people alive on earth. And after that flood, they repopulated the world. As the story of the flood was verbally passed from one generation to the next, some aspects would have been lost or altered. And this is what has happened. As historical records indicate, interestingly, each story shares remarkable similarities to the account of Noah in the Bible. This is true even in the details, just even in the name Nu'u in the Hawaiian flood story. Obviously, Nu'u is very similar to what? There, Noah. Noah back there, right? So, uh, Dr. Money White continues here. He says, The reason for these flood stories is not difficult to understand. When we turn to the history book of the universe, the Bible, we learn that Noah's descendants stayed together for approximately 100 years until God confused their languages in Babel, right? Genesis 11, which we're going to get to eventually. As these people moved away from Babel, their descendants formed nations based primarily on the languages that they shared in common. Through those languages, the story of the flood was shared until it became embedded in their cultural history, end quote. Praise to God that we have the actual historical record of what happened thousands of years ago 
Okay, likely around 4,400 years ago, 2350 B.C. Genesis chapter 6 through 9 tells us that this catastrophe that he brought upon the earth, God brought this great deluge that brought massive destruction upon the entire earth and every living thing. I want to bring to your attention that what was true in Noah's time is true to us today. This is not just a story for children. Okay, if it was, it wouldn't, wouldn't be a very pleasant one. Okay, not a good one to tell the kids as they go to bed, uh, necessarily. Nor is it a folk tale, nor is it an epic legend. The truth is that judgment is coming. And the question for today is, are you preparing? Judgment is coming. Are you preparing? So let's read the text in Genesis chapter 6. And our theme, our theme, our big idea today is in your bulletin there is that the righteous live by faith in God and prepare accordingly believing God's warnings that he will judge the wicked okay so with that theme in mind uh, if you're able to please stand as I read God's word we want to respect the word of God so we stand but if you're not able to that's fine Genesis 6 verses 9 through 22 is our text for today These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you, to keep them alive. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Please be seated. We have four points in our message today. And once again, the righteous live by faith in God and prepare accordingly. So our first from the first few verses there is about righteous character. And it begins in verse 9 by saying, These are the records of the generations of Noah. Tolidot is the word in Hebrew, generations. And this is um, the third one out of technically 11 in the book of Genesis, which serve as introductory markers of a new section And so it's going to tell all about what's come of the people that they're describing next. And so who is this man? It's Noah. He was a righteous man. And um, he's described as a man of righteous character. And let's be sure to remember the previous verse that we looked at last week. All right? Um, All of this, these three ways that Noah is described, these wonderful things, aspects of his character, are all of God's grace upon Noah. Right? What does verse 8 say again? But Noah found what? favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, it doesn't say that Noah earned God's favor. It doesn't say that he deserved God's grace. 
Okay, the very definition of grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. So with that said, Noah was a righteous man. He seems to be singularly righteous, especially among the wickedness of his day. Definition of righteous is to conform to God's moral and ethical standards. Okay, believing and doing what is right according to God's standards of what is right and fair and true and just. Okay, that's righteous. Noah was a righteous man. That was his character. And he wasn't perfect, but he lived an exemplary life. It says he was blameless in his time. And again, blameless does not mean sinless. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Romans 3.23. But this is talking about someone who has integrity and honor. He doesn't go along with the sinful ways of the world. He is someone with an upright heart who strives to follow God's word and God's ways. And that reminds me of the 1 Timothy 3, right? The character 6, the qualifications of a pastor, of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, begins with, he must be what? Above reproach. He must be blameless. Okay? And then it says, Noah walked with God. He lived a faithful, obedient life as Enoch did. Right? Enoch, Noah, described as walking with God. They had a particularly close fellowship and communion with their creator. And this was his habit. This was his manner of life. Listen, people sometimes tell me, yeah, my, my son or daughter, they're a Christian. Uh, they're just not walking with the Lord recently. Right? Then they go on to describe that they're you know, not going to church. They're in a sexually immoral relationship with their girlfriend or boyfriend. And they, just, they like to get drunk on some weekends. They like to party sometimes. Right? That's a very, very, very low standard of what a, a Christian is. And they're not just not walking with the Lord. And they're, they're running with the devil. Right? They're on a highway to hell, if you will. And so that's in contrast to what it actually means to walk with God, as Noah did. This is someone who reveres and loves God. It's the result of having a righteous character, this consistent, continual constant communion with God. Basically, it's a life of constant worship. So, as a quick side note, okay, the issue of Noah being the only one righteous on the earth. Uh, this came up in care groups, so I just want to address it real quick, and some of you might be wondering the same thing. What about Methuselah, right, and Lamech, Noah's father? Hey, I think it's a, maybe a fair assumption that Methuselah was a godly man, and perhaps even Lamech being Noah's father, okay, so we know uh, Genesis 7, verse 1, the next chapter, says that there were no righteous people that were left on the earth when the flood came. Okay? 7, verse 1 is like, it's not like, it is one week before the flood. So for sure, if Methuselah and Lamech were godly men, they must have died before the flood arrived. Okay? And if, if we are right in our suspicions that Methuselah and Lamech were actually godly righteous men, we can also be sure that when God declared that the whole earth was wicked and evil, those guys were either both dead by that time or God declared it with the anticipation of the time after their death. Okay? Again, Genesis 7-1 is one week before the flood. Noah alone is the only one who God sees as righteous on the earth. Okay? So I hope that helps. Uh, I want to give you a quick, by the way, also. It's possible that Methuselah and Lamech helped Noah build the ark, all right? Although I can't say that for sure. It doesn't say it in the Bible. It doesn't even talk about Noah's sons helping with the ark, right? But we do know that there's a lot going on in the lives of these people that Scripture doesn't tell us. We should try not to speculate beyond what the Bible says, but we should understand that these were real people with real relationships in real life with real struggles, okay, just like you and me, all right? So in this brief description that God gives us here of building the ark, obviously there's much that is not said. Whether Noah worked alone or had his family helping or hired unbelieving neighbors, right, we don't know that. But um, just want to get that rounded understanding of when we read narrative, okay? So lastly and importantly on this point of righteous character, everyone 
from Adam on, including everyone in Cain's line, everyone in Seth's line, including Methuselah and Enoch and Noah, all were sinners. Okay? Noah is called righteous and blameless in his time here because he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's very important. So that the righteousness that he had, it didn't come from himself. He was not righteous in and of himself. He was not righteous on his own. Okay, Hebrews 11:7 says that Noah's righteousness was by what? By faith. By faith. By faith, Noah being warned about God, being warned by God about things not yet seen, became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Okay, an heir, H-E-I-R, is a recipient. Okay, it's someone who receives something. So we put that together with, with Ephesians 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, right, is the gift of God. Even the, the grace and the faith, it's not of ourselves. It's God's gift. He gives us the, the desire, the ability to repent and believe in the gospel. So just like everybody else in his time, Noah was a sinner, but in stark Vast contrast to, to the wickedness, widespread wickedness of the people in the land. He believed in God and trusted in God's forgiving grace. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, okay? And thus he walked with God. So Second Peter 2 verse 5 also mentions that, Peter, um, that Noah was a, a preacher of righteousness. Okay? He was a herald who was calling people to turn from their sin and trust in God, the, the the flood of judgment is coming. Noah was heralding, preaching that to, to the people around him while building this huge ark, maybe 100 years, maybe 120 years, okay, with, to people who had no ears to hear. This is what Noah, the righteous man walking with God, was doing. And so verse 10 says, Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I'm not going to spend any time on that right now, okay, except to say that we're going to see more in chapters 9 and 10 pretty in-depth, but the line of the promised seed continues. Okay, just keep that thought in your mind. So application, folks. Listen, are you heeding God's warnings that you will be judged for your sins? Okay, your unbelief in his son. All right, if you're not a Christian this morning, that is a question that God asks you. Are you heeding his warnings this morning that you will be judged for your sins? And the call to, to put your faith in Christ alone. Believers, are you walking with the Lord? Okay, that is, again, in close fellowship and obedience to him. Okay, the fear of the Lord, this is my favorite definition of the fear of the Lord. Cultivating and honoring awareness of the presence and character of God. Okay, would someone say that about you? And the very most basic thing, folks, and uh, me and Pastor Bill were talking the other day. If you want to be physically healthy, there's no way around it. Good diet and regular exercise. Just there's no way around those two things, right? If you want to be reasonably fit, physically used of God for his kingdom, uh, spiritually fit, spiritually healthy, without daily Bible reading and prayer, you will never grow as a Christian. Okay, so I ask you, are you walking with the Lord? Are you even doing the, the basics? Are you reading your Bibles? Are you praying to God? Okay, we could go uh, a lot deeper than that, but we've got to move on here. The second point that I want to bring out from the text today is the corruption of man and the character of God, verses 11 to 13. And uh, first off, we need to acknowledge, even from these verses, that God says the earth. Okay, he says all flesh multiple times, okay, both of those phrases. Uh, in other words, he's not talking about just a certain segment of the population that's wicked and corrupt. It's everyone. Okay, not saying to Noah, the people living in your town or your country, Noah, no, that's not what he's saying. The flood is not going to be local. Clearly, it's the whole planet, the whole population who God is describing as evil and corrupt. And so he says, behold, I am about to destroy them. Who? All flesh, he says, with the earth. He's going to destroy every living person on the planet. Okay? Everyone on earth has become corrupt. That word means ruined or spoiled, twisted and perverted. Okay, they're all filled with violence, is how God describes it. They're lawless, hateful, murderous. Verse 5 again of chapter 6, a few verses before. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, all day long evil. Okay, God is offended and grieved, as we saw last week, by all this depravity. 
He's pained and saddened to his very heart. And as perverse and crooked a generation as we live in today, it seems it was just as bad, if not worse, in Noah's time. Whatever the case, Romans chapter 1 gives a striking picture of what's happening in such kinds of societies, and even today in our society. Perhaps similar evil was going on back in Noah's day. I'm not going to read the passage, but Romans chapter 1 It describes not only people in society committing gross acts of sexual immorality and evil and murder and deception and unrighteousness, but also a society with people who give hearty approval to those who practice those things. Romans 132. Hey, listen, it's bad enough, for example, what Hamas did in attacking Israel, right, recently. But we also have those who are approving of them in our country. Hundreds of groups in elite Ivy League universities like Harvard and Berkeley, etc., who are supporting and defending these acts of terror against Israel. There's a Berkeley professor who was was telling, he went on social media, warning people not to hire his students. This is a a, a liberal person who's saying, "They're, they're way off the rails. Don't hire my students. And so, back to Genesis chapter 6, man's corruption. It was widespread, it was awful, it was depraved. God speaks directly to Noah. He tells him, direct line, Noah's hearing straight from God. He tells him he's going to destroy the whole earth. He doesn't mention how just yet, but it's coming. Basically, he's wiping out everyone except for Noah and his family. So I'm going to talk about God's character. Listen, it's often said that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Is that true? Sometimes that goes along with those who say God is love and so he cannot hate. Is that true? I want you to consider this thought regarding God's character. God is love, therefore he must hate. God is love, therefore he must hate. And I'll give you an example even for us. Uh, on a human level. Okay. Do you love infants? Yes? Uh, me too. Then you must hate abortion. Okay. Do you love Israel? Do you love Jewish people? Then you must hate the Holocaust. You must hate things that are going on right now in Israel. Okay. The principle is, if you truly love what is right and good and perfect then you will also have an animosity against everything and anything that is against what is good and right and perfect. The Bible says that God's hatred is manifest against all wickedness. And his hatred is not only against the sin, it's against the sinner. I had Pastor Bill read Psalm 5 for a reason this morning. And I'm going to give you some scriptures because some of you are, are not agreeing with me. Okay, so, so consider Scripture versus God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Okay? Psalm 5, verses 5 and 6. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors. That's an even stronger word for hate. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. Do you see that? God's hatred here is not just towards the wicked deeds. His hatred is toward the person who does the wicked deeds. I'll give you another one. Psalm 11, verses 4 through 7. Psalm 11, 4 through 7. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. Listen. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Why is that? For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Do you see the connection, dear people? Because God is righteous, he loves righteousness. And he hates wickedness. And he hates the wicked. Last one, Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. 
Listen, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. And listen to the last two. A false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That passage includes not just things that God hates, but people that God hates. He hates a false witness. He hates one who spreads strife. So there's others. I'll just give them to you, okay? I'm not going to read them. Leviticus 20, verse 23. Hosea 9, verse 15. Malachi 1, 3. Romans 9, 13, which is quoting Malachi 1, 3. Okay, there's also a bunch of references, and I'm not going to even give them to you, but uh, God hating sin and evil and etc. doesn't mention people there, but if you put all this together, folks, um, it, would, it would make for quite the sermon, right? God's hatred towards sinners. And, you know, you might clear the church out and nobody ever comes back again. But I, I'm just trying to give you scripture here. And implied in the verses that don't talk about people that God hates, but things and evil and wickedness that God hates, is that God doesn't really separate the sin from the sinner. Okay? Lying involves a person who is lying. God doesn't separate his judgment. Think about this truth. God does not punish merely sin in hell. He punishes sinners in hell. Okay? The wrath of God is a result of him being holy and righteous, but it's also connected with him being loving and good. Can God be loving and not move against wickedness? No. Can God be good and be apathetic towards evil? Absolutely not. So I understand what, what people are trying to say. God loves the sinner but hates the sin. But it, and it's not even exactly a false statement. But it's not the whole story. And it's somewhat misleading. It sounds like we're trying to do God a favor. Okay, like we need to be his PR people public relations for God, okay? So I'm not telling you this morning that we want to go around telling people that God hates you, okay? <laughs> or God hates, uh, I mean, just that's Westboro Baptist Church, right? Which is not a real church, by the way. They go around with the signs that God hates homosexuals. Okay, that's a, a, an incredibly bad application at the very least. Okay, they are actually false teachers, false witnesses. They're going to face, face greater punishment in hell than homosexuals will, Okay? So that's not the principle I'm trying to get across. But I will say, once again, God doesn't need our PR. Okay, there's no PR for a God who destroys the entire planet except for eight people. Okay, there's no way to, to make that sound nice. Okay? So it's not a biblical thing necessarily to say that phrase. And so I hope you see that from the passages, passages that I gave you. His wrath is real. His judgment is true. He doesn't pour out the fury of his wrath onto people he approves of. He pours it out onto people that he infinitely disapproves of. So let me just give you a quick quote from John Piper. He just helps uh, immensely here. Uh, He says that infinite disapproval is what the Bible means when it says that God hates sinners. He infinitely disapproves of them. Sin is not sinful except as committed by sinful hearts. Sin is an expression of anti-God human corruption in human hearts. Sins do not suffer in hell. Sinners do. So God hates, and here's the paradox, right? And he loves at the same time. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, the world that he hates. Hate and love are simultaneous As God looks upon hateful, rebellious, corrupt, loathsome, wicked, God-dishonoring sinners, God's love moves him to save millions upon millions of people who, in and of themselves, are loathsome to him. End quote. And that's really part of what makes the gospel and salvation of sinners so stunning, isn't it? If we don't understand, if we don't get that God beholds and finds sinners hateful and abhorrable in our ugly sin— We're not going to be stunned by the greatness and depth of his love for us. Do we realize that God saves? Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many who are utterly reprehensible to him. 
Okay, in and of ourselves, that's what we are to God in our rebellion. Okay, just like we find certain depraved people and sinful people reprehensible because of their sin, like child abusers and sex traffickers, right? We find that disgusting. But God comes to us. Jesus dies for us. In fact, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. That's the character of God. All right? So application. Unlike God, we cannot perfectly love and hate people at the same time. We can't do that. We're imperfect humans. So that phrase is actually helpful for us. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Okay, but how do we do that? What does that look like? I want to give you some help today. You might just want to write these down. Okay, four things, four, four ways that we can love the sinner and hate the sin. First is have a biblical understanding of what sin is. Okay, love what God loves and hate what God hates. Sin is, is disgusting. It's offensive. It's saddening to God. It's to be hated. It's not to be taken lightly or easily excused. Romans 12.9 says, Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Second thing you can do is refuse to take part in sin yourself. Okay, mortify it. Kill it in your own life and in your, in your own heart. Grow in holiness. Okay, be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Romans 16, verse 19. Right? So, in other words, be sanctified. The third thing you can do, what we can do, we can love sinners. We can love unbelievers by showing them respect. That's what 1 Peter 2, verse 17 tells us to do. We can pray for them. That's what 1 Timothy 2, verse 1 says to do. Right? Especially government leaders that we don't agree with. We're called and commanded, actually, to pray for them. And we're to witness to all the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, I kind of put all those together in that third one. Okay? Show them respect, pray for them, witness to them. The last one is understand the Bible, which says you are not the judge. Okay, you, are not the ju- you are not in control of things. God is. God is the one who will judge. Romans 12, 19. He says, vengeance is mine. Don't worry about it. I got it. I'll take care of the wicked. Yeah, you go preach the gospel. So it's good to ask yourself, good to ask yourself, is it an act of Christ-like love, if I'm a Christian, okay, for me to treat someone with respect and kindness, even if you don't approve of his or her lifestyle or their sinful choices? Is it? If you're a Christian, the answer should be yes. And I'll give you an example of Open Arms Pregnancy Clinic. Even when clients choose abortion, they communicate to these sinful women um, that open arms is going to be there for them if they want counseling, if they need help, even if they choose abortion. Okay, rather than this, we hate you now and we hope you go to hell because you chose abortion. Okay, that's not what a, a Christ-like, loving ministry does. Okay, we keep people to account with the truth. We, we speak the truth in love. But a genuine desire to help and serve and minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to sinful people is with the hope that they might be forgiven of all their sins, even abortion, okay? And turn and put their faith in Christ and have the gift of eternal life. So we need to move to the next point. Um, in light of God's character, okay, let's look, look next at his commands, the commands of God, verses 14 to 21. And um, it's very interesting to me that God tells Noah that he's going to destroy, in this order, he's going to destroy every person on the earth. Then he tells Noah to build an ark with all the instructions on how to do that. And then after that, he tells Noah how he's going to destroy man in verse 17, right? through a flood of water upon the earth. I just find that interesting, the order. But anyway, God tells Noah to make an ark out of gopher wood, possibly cypress trees. We don't know exactly what kind of trees they are, but um, Noah would have known. So let's go over these basic instructions. It's always interesting to see the, the ark, right? Answers in Genesis build a, built a like life-size replica of, of the ark. Um, the ark needs to have rooms. So this would be for his family members and all the animals to be housed, Probably separate spaces for each type of animal. Three stories inside that ark. Uh, 
three levels. Some rabbis have written that, quote, the top rooms for the human beings, the middle ones as cabins for the cattle, and the bottom was for the waste, end quote. I'm not sure about all that, but this structure would be fitting and appropriate for survival. The ark also needs to be protected and sealed. God tells him to cover it inside and out with pitch. This tar-like substance covering the inside and outside would seal up the frame. It was like uh, Moses' basket when he was a baby, right, as he floated down the Nile. It was covered with that pitch, Exodus 2, verse 3. The ark's measurements, interesting. One cubit, by the way, uh, it says 300 cubits uh, long and 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. So one cubit is the distance between a man's elbow and the end of his fingers, okay, roughly 18 inches, about a foot and a half. And so 300 cubits would be 450 feet long, and 50 cubits would be 75 feet wide, 30 cubits 45 feet high, and three floors, so 15 feet each roughly. It's interesting to observe that the ark was likely more of a rectangular shape, box-like shape, rather than a a round-edged boat that we normally think of. And modern engineering informs us that the ratio of, listen to this, 30 by 5 by 3, okay, length, width, height. Um, that ratio uh, is the optimum design for maximum stability of a vessel in rough seas. And that ratio happens to be the exact um, same as the arc's measurements. So in other words, the arc would be almost impossible to capsize. But considering this huge task ahead that Noah has, Uh, It makes sense now that it'll take perhaps 100 years, maybe 120 years for him to build it. It might help to explain how Noah was able to build such a large vessel. In other words, it took 115 years to get the permits and five years to build it. (laughs) And Dave can relate with that one. So continuing, there needs to be a window for the ark, God says, all the way to the top. He says, finish it to a cubit, a foot and a half from the top. Um, It's possible that this was like a a skylight roof. So some of you might be asking, then, how did they get light to the the bottom deck, to the third tier? And um, they used floodlights is the answer. (laughs) That was just a joke. So so, uh, anyway, there's a window at the top, and there's a door, uh, door obviously, over to the side, which is needed for entry and for departure. And so, verse 17, there's a little bit of a break uh, with these commands because God says in verse 17, Behold, he says it twice, Behold, listen, pay attention, open your ears, open your eyes, Noah, what I'm about to say. He says, I, even I, okay, this is not a natural disaster. This is not Mother Nature doing its thing. This is not just uh, extremely bizarre and bad weather like you see on the Weather Channel. No, this is I, even I, God, is making it clear he's the one who's going to bring this to pass. He's the one bringing this catastrophe upon the earth. And his purpose is to blot out man from the face of it, destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish. Okay, we'll, we'll go more into just the universal language that's throughout Genesis chapter 6. Okay, it's clearly not a local flood, folks, just... If that's in your kind of purview, get that out. It's, um, it's, it's playing fast and loose with the text, if that's what you think. It's universal. It's um, planet Earth-wide. It includes not only the humans, but all the animals, every living being that's on the face of the Earth. So sin, like we mentioned a few Sunday go- Sundays ago, has, has consequences that are even beyond uh, the human kingdom, but into the animal kingdom. This is how drastic it was. So verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. That's the first time the word covenant is used in the Bible. And this is God's promise and his solemn oath to Noah. We're going to learn more about this covenant, which theologians call the Noahic covenant, right, Noah, in chapter 9, which is after the flood. So I'm not going to say anything more other than, other than you should note for now that God is the one in action. He establishes and initiates this covenant. Noah is on the receiving end of it. And what a great promise God makes to him and his family. The only ones in the entire planet 
We're going to survive this great deluge that I'm going to bring. And this will happen through Noah listening to God's commands, right, to build this ark and to walk into it. So a couple more instructions that he gives uh, regarding the animals, verses 19 and 20. Um, This is God's rescue, reset, replenish the earth plan for the animals. Noah, bring two of every kind into the ark. Keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Noah's to take care of them, however long they're supposed to be in the ark. They need to be male and female, of course, right, to reproduce and replenish the earth after the flood. Those three main categories of animals are mentioned, birds, animals, every creeping thing of the ground. These would be land-dwelling, air-breathing vertebrate animals corresponding to modern birds and mammals and reptiles. The question that everyone has at this point is, how on earth did Noah fit all those millions and millions of animals on the ark? Well, it's important for us to notice, he says, after their kind, two after their kind, after its kind. It's not every single type of bird, not every single type of animal, rather those after their kind. So you don't need every type of dog, just need two dogs. You don't need every type of cat, just two cats. Answers in Genesis and others note that kind was a a broader category than the modern classification of species. It wasn't even every species. It was more like family. Or some have even conservatively broadened it to to genus. It was two of each kind, and then we'll we'll see next week seven of some. By the way, also, it was most likely younger animals, not full-grown ones who would be a lot larger. So younger animals would have full reproductive capabilities to repopulate the earth after the flood. And so even of the larger animals like elephants and giraffes and hippos and rhinos, um, larger dinosaurs, they would be relatively small. Collectively, they would not require that large of an area. Um, Given all that, Answers in Genesis asks, how many? How many then? Quote, being very careful... Scientists who calculated these things conclude that the maximum number of animals that needed to be on the ark was 16,000, with the vast majority being less than 22 pounds each. Answers in Genesis believes that there were slightly less than 7,000 animals on the ark, representing slightly less than 1,400 kinds. Um, According to author John Woodmorap, fitting the animals on the ark, he says, quote, Without the tiering of cages, only 47% of the ark floor would have been necessary to house all the animals. And what's more, many could have been housed in groups, which would have further reduced the required space, end quote. So all these kinds of animals, God tells Noah, they will come to you. God will have the animals come to Noah. He's not going to have to chase them down or train them to, to come. He says, they'll come. Just bring them in. He commands Noah to, to uh, as we conclude this point, food. Verse 21. As for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible. Gather it to yourself. It shall be food for you and for them. So there must be a lot of grub, right? Lots of food to, to bring in. Must have taken a lot of time to gather. Um, John Woodmore app again. He says, quote, what about the provisions for the animals? Well, it can be shown that the food would have filled only 6 to 12% of the volume of the ark, and even the potable water, only an additional 9% of the same, end quote. So note that people were still vegetarians at this time. The change in man's menu happens after the flood. We'll get to that in Genesis chapter 9. But the point of all this is that God is providing. He has all the bases covered. This was all of his plan. And he gave Noah these commands. And what did Noah do? Would Noah obey? Verse 22. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. All right? Um, begins with Noah doing it, ends with Noah doing it. Think about this for a moment. It must have been quite incredible for Noah, even maybe to the bounds of unbelievability, that God would do such a thing wipe out every single person on the planet, and do it by sending a flood of water on the earth. Uh, It's debatable if it's ever rained on the earth before the flood. 
the Bible does not tell us specifically either way. Theologians have pointed to different verses to make their case, but it's still not clear. So this is another of those issues that it's good not to be so dogmatic about since Scripture is not clear about it. Nevertheless, what could Noah have been thinking as God tells him all this? Right? Sending enough water in a flood to wipe out the entire population of the world. And you want me to build an ark? How tall? How big? Wait, how many animals is that going to be? And they're all just going to come? And we're supposed to survive in this ark with all those animals in there for how long is this going to last? It's, it's possible that Noah had a boatload of questions on his mind, right? But none are mentioned in the scripture here at all. And maybe, maybe he didn't question. Okay? What we know for sure is that Noah believed and he obeyed. Thus, Noah did. He just did what God said. And all of what God said, he did. He trusted the Lord. According to all that God commanded, he did it. He was preparing. Okay? Noah believed God's warnings, and he took action on his faith. He was obeying God's commands, walking with God. Once more, Hebrews eleven seven, By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in other words, the flood, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household. The righteous live by faith in God and prepare accordingly, believing God's warnings that he will judge the wicked. So as we land this plane, dear people, judgment is coming. Question for today is, are you preparing? Jesus told a few parables addressing this in Matthew 24 and 25. And he starts off in Matthew 24. You can turn there or not. Matthew 24, listen to what he says. Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood... They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 32, he says, Therefore be on the alert, verse 42, Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. So one of the parables that he tells next the next parable, actually, warns his disciples to be prepared. Okay? Uh, he could come much sooner than we think. And then the very next parable that he teaches them, he says that his return could be a longer delay than expected. Whenever he decides to come back, we don't know the hour. And he doesn't want the disciples, he doesn't want us to be consumed with knowing when or trying to figure out exactly when that's going to be. What's the lesson from King Jesus in these parables? Be preparing for judgment. Be preparing for his return. Hebrews 10 verse 37 says, For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Hebrews ten thirty-seven to 39. Beloved, are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you preparing for that? Or are you too busy with other things in life? Too busy with your hobbies. Too busy with work too busy with your retirement plans, too busy with whatever it is, entertainment. His judgment is coming. And is God telling us to build an ark? No. 
But if he was, uh, I know who I'm calling for help with that, our brother Dave right here. Okay, is God calling us and telling us to build a, a rocket ship to escape to Mars? No, he's not. Okay, sorry, Mr. Musk. But God is telling us to build up one another in the body of Christ. We're called to build up the church. And this is the final passage for today, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. Jot it down or turn there. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. And he, God, gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For what? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. This is the church. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 16, last verse, From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part that you and I, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The church, which Jesus says he's going to build, and all the powers of hell will not be able to stop it, this is the place where people can be built up in their faith to mature in their spiritual progress. It's the safe place where we're all responsible for one another, and building it up is a team project. We're all in it together, as I just read from Hebrew, uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Paul calls the church the pillar and support of the truth. We grow in our knowledge of the truth, okay, precious, life-giving gospel truths that we gather to learn and we scatter to spread to a lost and dark, unbelieving world. Okay, are you preparing for the judgment to come? Dear Faith Bible Church family, let's get focused. Let's get on task building up the body the church, bringing sinners to the Lord, living by faith, trusting God's great warnings and promises that we see in his word. And to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for this wonderful passage in Genesis once again. Thank you for even things that are difficult to hear or to understand. But I pray that your spirit has opened up the eyes of our heart, the ears of our souls, that we'd be able to receive these things and recognize that you reveal them to us in your great love. And we are graced to live in the light of it. Help us, God, to be faithful, I pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.